If you die in your hardened heart of unbelief, your destination is hell. But you don't have to go there. Jesus came to give you the gift of eternal life. He came to give you freedom over death. Would you dare to claim those four beautiful freedoms spiritually that Jesus has given us? Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. On our last broadcast, David took us to the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, where Jesus made the claim to have existed forever, even before the world was created. That means Jesus oversees and controls everything. Today, David picks up right where we left off in a message called, Be Free. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said after raising Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he lives and dies, will never die. It's a great promise from him. We'll never die. What happens for people who believe in Jesus, our eyes may close and our body will experience death because that's what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. You will surely die. They did. Death was invited into them. But literally, our bodies will die, but our souls, our spirits will not die. They'll go immediately into the presence of Jesus. It'll be like falling asleep when we open our eyes. We'll be in the presence of Jesus. We'll see his first, first, his face first. Then we'll see all of our loved ones around us. He'll give us our new eternal resurrection bodies in which we'll live forever. Perfect material bodies that will never grieve, hurt, cry, have tribulation, tears, or anything else. It is something that all who believe in Jesus will have. He says very clearly here in this promise, anyone who keeps my word will never see death. Now the Jews, you can just see if they're wearing their yarmulkes on the top of their head, uh, they probably got steam coming out of their ears and their little yarmulkes are jumping off the top of their head as they're hearing this claim about if you believe in Jesus, you'll never experience death. And they're going, what in the world is he saying? Again, the ratcheting up of the interaction and the angry confrontation between them. And here's how they respond in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. We're absolutely convinced now that you have a demon. There is no doubt in our mind that you're claiming that through you, if people believe in, in you and keep your word, that they will never die. We're certain now that you have a demon. Then they go to two places to try to prove their point. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So they first of all go to their father in physicality, Abraham, and they say, look, Abraham, our first father, the one from whom we all descended, he died. And, and look at all the prophets, you know, how they were revered in Jewish tradition from Isaiah to Elijah to Elisha on down to Malachi throughout all the Old Testament prophets. They all died. I mean, all these great men of God all died. Who do you think you are? What in the world are you saying? And this, I love this phrase. Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, that's a biblical way of saying this way. Who do you think you are? <laughs> I mean, Abraham died. All the prophets died. You say people believe in you. They're never going to see death or they say taste death. Who do you think you are? It was probably said like that with a lot of anger, with a bit of an edge to it because they could not believe what they were hearing. Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, Jesus listens. And then in verse 54, he answers. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. 
but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. See that? Jesus called them liars. But I do know him and I keep his word. So who do you think you are? Well, Jesus said, well, let me tell you. I am the one who is in an intimate relationship with the Father himself. I know him and he knows me. And in that relationship, my desire is only to do his will. And it's my Father who will glorify me. What is he referring to there? After his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, that's going to be God's way of saying, told you so, guys, he is my son. He is the second person of the Godhead. He's God in human flesh. He's equal to me in every possible way. The proof, again, is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus into heaven. And there's some implication here, too, of the second coming of Jesus. And when he returns again, that's going to validate everything that he said previously as well. And Jesus basically said, this one whom you say is you are God, but if you really loved him, you would know me because of how deeply and intimately I know him and I keep his word. I obey everything that he tells me to do, unlike what you do on a regular basis. Who do you think you are? Clear claim. I'm God. And I'm in a relationship with the Father in heaven. We're equal in every possible way. And he honors me and glorifies me in my coming to this earth, taking on human flesh to accomplish the work of salvation, to give you the gift of eternal life. When I die on that cross, all the sins of the world are taken upon me. And you then can receive forgiveness from your sins with the gift of grace that I want to give you. Not of your works, just because I give it to you because I love you so much. And you now will never see death. You'll never taste death. You'll never die. That's how Jesus responded to them. Then he says something incredible in verse 56. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Whoa. They're talking about their father being Abraham. And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see this day and indeed, he saw it himself. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? We don't know exactly for sure. But I think in the Old Testament, there are several places where there are what are called theophanic or Christophanic visions of Jesus. It's when Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, appeared on this earth in order to be a part of salvation history and the accomplishment of the forgiveness of our sins ultimately through Jesus. And I believe those happened on several different occasions with Abraham. I think, for example, in Genesis 12, uh, there was an encounter with God where God made a covenant with Abraham and he said with you, I will be your God, you'll be my child, and through you with this faith declaration between you and me, uh, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a seed, a son through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And there was a talking encounter between God and Abraham with this covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, could that have been a Christophanic voice, a Jesus voice to Abraham? I think so. Uh, in Genesis chapter 17, for example, you have three persons who come to visit Abraham. 
Abraham. Now, the promise of the seed, the promise of the son in Genesis 12 happened when Abraham was 75. This is 25 years later and the son has not happened yet. The seed had not occurred yet. So 25 years later, three figures come and visit Abraham and they start talking together about this promise that God had given. And then at the end of that chapter, interestingly, two of those figures are identified as angels and they go off to Sodom and Gomorrah to do the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. The one who stays is called the Lord, capital L. It's God. God stays and enters into a conversation with Abraham and the Lord, whom I think is Jesus himself. I think it's a Christophanic, theophanic vision of the Lord coming to Abraham. And he basically promises him that what he said 25 years ago is going to take place. He said to him, next year at this time, you will have a son. Sarah is 90, Abraham is 100. And when Sarah is eavesdropping and hears the Lord say, Next year at this time, you're going to have a son. She laughs. And you know what happens? Next year at that time, they have a son. And when he comes out of the womb and they hold him, they name him Isaac, which means laughter. Because they laughed when God promised that that would happen a year earlier. They just didn't think it was going to happen, but it did happen. And they named the child Isaac again, which means laughter. God's so faithful. But I think in Genesis 18, that encounter between Abraham and the Lord was Jesus. He saw him and he received the promise that was given to him. And then another one could be Genesis 22, where Abraham's commanded to sacrifice Isaac. At this stage, he's a teenager, probably a grown boy, and he has to go up a mountain and Isaac carries wood up to that mountain where an altar is built. Abraham straps Isaac on that altar in obedience to God. But at the bottom of the mountain, in accordance with a verse in Hebrews, Abraham believed that even if he had to sacrifice Isaac, this child was the child of promise, the child of covenant through whom all of the nations would be blessed. Abraham believed that God would even raise him from the dead. And he's right at the point of lifting up his knife to sacrifice Isaac. A voice comes out, a theophanic, Christophanic voice that says, Abraham, don't do it. And he provides a ram of provision. God is called there Jehovah Jireh. God is my provider. Dear friends, what do you need today? God's name is, I am your provider, whatever it might be. Not I was or I will be, I am right now, whatever you need. And God promised to be Abraham's provider. But beyond that, on that mountain, where some hundreds of years later, the temple would be built. On that mountain where Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac was the mountain where the temple was to be built. Where's Jesus in John 8? He's in the temple right there where Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac. And I think at that point, Jesus gave Abraham a vision of himself hundreds of years later. Who would mount a mountain called Calvary and he would take a wooden cross, which was like a God altar and be planted on that cross and there he would be sacrificed and God would be Jehovah Jireh, our provision for our sins to be forgiven, to be given the gift of eternal life. Because right across that mountain range from Mount Moriah where the temple was built is Calvary. And could it be that Jesus turned to Abraham and said, right over there, Abraham, right over there, hundreds of years from now, I'm going to go up a mountain too with wood and I'm going to die on that wood for the forgiveness of people's sins. And Abraham had a sense of, oh, 
this great man who operated by faith? And did he rejoice in what he knew was going to happen in the future through this Christophanic, theophanic, Jesus-centered vision that came to him? Doesn't that help make this verse make sense? So Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad, was glad to know who Jesus was, God in human flesh to take away the sins of the world. Now, verse 57, here's how the Jews respond to him. You're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. You know, in that day, the older that people were, the more credible they were as teachers. That gives hope for me with my grayer hair, doesn't it, folks? <laughs> you're not even 50. I mean, you're even 30, 32. How come you think you know all of these things again? Who do you think you are that you've seen Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. You're only like 32 or so years old. And so Jesus responds to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. The term I am from Exodus 3, verse 14, Moses before the burning bush. And that burning bush is not being consumed. It's a contradiction. It doesn't make any sense to Moses. And God speaks to him through that burning bush and says, I'm calling you to go to Pharaoh to set my people free. Moses thinks he can't speak very well has to depend upon Aaron to be the public speaker a lot. And he's uttering and stuttering. And he says, well, well, who should I say is sending me? And God says, I am who I am. God self-identified with the term I am. It was the holiest of names for God. It was unutterable by the Jews. They would never take the Lord's name in vain. They wouldn't even say it to avoid breaking that one commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain. I am who I am, the name of God that the Jews used for all of the centuries thereafter. And so Jesus already, when trying to self-identify, when asked, well, who do you think you are? Who are you? Has already said, I am the bread of life in John 6, 35. If you eat of me, you will never, ever hunger again. He's talking about spiritual food. Folks, when you ingest Jesus every day of your life, you'll never hunger for the tawdry baubles of this world that just don't satisfy. And then in John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Yahweh, I am. He uttered the unutterable. I am the light to your path to take you to heaven. I am the light to show you how to live so that you won't step off the edges of the road and get hurt in any possible way. I am your inward light to expose your sin, but also give you the truth of who I am and how to take you home. I am the light of the world. And here is the third time in John, Jesus uses the phrase before Abraham was ever born, I am. Jesus was declaring to be self-existent. He was declaring to exist outside the time and space of this world. In Revelation 1, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He began this world. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created this world. In Colossians 1, Hebrews 2, Jesus is the self-existent creator of all of this earth and the universe. He is the one who did it. So before Abraham was ever born, Jesus is saying to these guys, I am. I existed. I'm God. Now, for those of you with children and they ask you, well, 
mom and dad, you were from your mom and dad and they were from their mom and dad. And it all goes back to God. Well, who created God? Have you been asked that question by your kids? If not, you've not probably exposed them to God enough because that's an inevitable question. Children ask parents, well, well, who created God? And here's the answer. No one did. God is out outside of time and space. God has always existed. He is the great I am. He wasn't. He not will be. He is forever. He's the one who created this world. He began it with a word, Genesis 1-1. He's the one who will end it at some point in his second coming and make this world everything that he intended it originally to be that Satan has caused it to fall in such degradation and decrepancy. Jesus says, I am. I'm God. And before Abraham ever existed, I am. I've always existed. I'm the creator of the universe. Well, he answered the question, who do you think you are? Who are you? And here is their response as the anger is ratcheted up to the highest possible level. So they picked up stones to throw at him, verse 59. But Jesus hid himself and went off out of the temple. They picked up stones. Leviticus 24, that if anybody commits blasphemy about God, they can be stoned to death. They thought Jesus claiming to be God was blasphemy, one of the few sins that could cause them to be stoned to death. So they picked up the stones to throw at Jesus. And we don't know whether it was a supernatural ability to get away from the crowds. We don't know whether Jesus stepped down off the podium there in the temple uh, and walked amidst the crowds and they just lost him. But he hid himself. And isn't that interesting that the master of the house that he built hid himself in the house from people who wanted to kill him? They wanted to stone him in. Folks, I don't know if you're angry at God or not. If you're angry at God, you've probably picked up a stone and you want to throw it at him. And let me encourage you, don't drop the stone and trust him because you will face the God of this universe, either forgiven or unforgiven. And if you're unforgiven, your destination is hell. But you don't have to go there. Jesus came to give you the gift of eternal life. He came to give you freedom over death. Would you dare to claim those four beautiful freedoms spiritually that Jesus has given us? Freedom from fear, freedom from sin, freedom from the devil, freedom from death. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp holding a sign that said, hungry, will work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. And most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. The place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. 
With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Hi, Jen. Great being with you as well. Well, in one of your recent e-devotions, you wrote about a Davidism that you call Create a Home Where Grace is in Place. I love that. Well, thank you, Jen. You know, my wife Marilyn and I have raised three adult children and We are fortunate that all three love the Lord deeply and are walking with Him. We didn't have to go through serious rebellion times with them. As preacher's kids, that's most unusual. (laughs) And we're asked sometimes, what's the key to your particular parenting style? And I think we both would say we tried very hard to create a home where grace was in place. One of my favorite stories had to do with Marilyn thinking up a song for our kids that she would sing to them every night before they went to bed. And it was this, I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're feeling good. Or when you're feeling bad, I love you, I love you, I really, really love you. No matter what you say or do, I really, really love you, I really, really love you. And she would sing that to them not only at night before they went to bed, but constantly throughout the day as a reminder they were deeply and dearly loved, trying to put grace in place in our home. Thinking in terms like you have air that you breathe, and when it's healthy air, you're healthy. Well, if grace is in place, it fills the air. And when kids are breathing in, they breathe in grace. It makes them healthy spiritually. Well, one day Bethany was walking around, I think it's about a seven or eight-year-old child, and She had butter on her hands and a full glass of milk, and she dropped the milk. It squirted out of her hands, and the Mm -hmm. glass broke on the floor. The milk splattered everywhere. And I came in, and I looked at her, and I went, oh, Bethany, good (laughs) heavens. I'm going to have to clean all of this up now. She looked at me and said, I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're feeling good or when you're feeling bad. <laughs> I love it. She was reminding me that I needed to operate oh, as wow. a dad at that moment wow. in a home where grace was in place. Mm. You know, Paul said in Romans 8, 38 and 39 that nothing, not one thing can ever separate us from the love of God, which mm. is in Christ Jesus. If we really believe that, we know that the love of our hearts, Jesus, is in us, but also that he, through us, should create an environment where we give grace to other people. And when a mom and dad practice that grace with one another, it should create a home where kids are raised in unconditional love, and they mostly will be healthy when they have that kind of air to breathe in the home. Mm, I love that story. I've heard you say before that Bethany is one of the best preachers in the family, and she was starting young, wasn't she? I I think she is the best preacher in our family. God has given her a gift, but she gets grace. That's the bottom line. But she got grace because she was living in a home where grace was in place. And my son David and my other son Michael, they all operate graciously in their homes now. David has two children, and Michael has one. And I can see they're doing the same thing mm-hmm. with their spouses, creating homes where grace is in place because they know when kids experience that, they will grow up healthily. I love this. And I'm reminded of John 1, 14, where Jesus was full of grace and truth. All grace, all the time, 
all truth all the time, not one or the other. Ah, that's a great point. You're not loving one day, then really stern the next day. You yeah. know, it's grace and truth all the time. And when you call your kids out on misbehavior, you immediately hug them yeah. and let them know how much they're still loved by you. That allows grace to conquer even their misbehavior. This has been so insightful. Thank you so much today, David. Thank you, Jen. Hope it helps you as a parent. Hope it helps yeah. anybody out there listening who's a parent. And please, if you'd like these daily written moments of hope, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. They'll arrive in your inbox every morning free of charge at 7 a.m. From my heart to yours to begin your day with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also check out David's Hopecast. They're both free and available at momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston. I hope you have a great weekend.